You're listening to ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Pharmaceutical companies are not the only ones out to influence our practice of medicine. Experts, insurance reviewers, advocacy groups, hospital administrators, and of course, patients and their families are just some of the people who would like us to do things a certain way. How can we successfully manage this? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, Director of Foothill Psychiatry in Boise, your host, and with me today is the Chairman of the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Buffalo, Dr. Stephen Dubofsky. Dr. Dubofsky recently authored the book, Psychotropic Drug Prescriber Survival Guide, Ethical Mental Health Treatment in the Age of Big Pharma. Welcome to ReachMD. Thank you, Leslie. I'm delighted to be here. So, Dr. Dubofsky, let's talk about, to start, let's say expert consensus guidelines. How useful are these to the practicing clinician? Well, the advent of these guidelines is a major advance in psychiatric practice in that they imply that it is not always acceptable to say, well, I've always done things this way and I'm going to keep doing things this way. I used to consult to a hospital group, and I suggested to the one of the psychiatrists there, it probably wasn't a good idea for him to put his arm around the patients, especially the more seductive ones, as a way of showing his support for them. And what he told me was, I've been practicing like this for 20 years, and it's never been a problem, and the patients appreciate it. And about three months later, he got sued by a patient. So, you know, we, we all tend to do things in a way that feels comfortable to us. And the concept of treatment guidelines says you really just can't do whatever feels good to you. And your practice should evolve over time so that hopefully none of us is doing everything the same now that we were doing 10 years ago or even last year. On the other hand, we have to be aware that the consensus guidelines are, number one, exactly that. That is, they are guidelines, not rules. In addition, we have to look at who formulates the guidelines and what are the data on which the guidelines are based. Now, if you look at most of the clinical trials in psychiatry in recent years, there are only two or three of them that have not been sponsored by industry. And industry-sponsored studies are designed to show that a treatment is better than a placebo. This is required by the FDA and sometimes not worse than an existing drug. They're not necessarily designed to show that the drug is better than an existing drug, just that it's not worse. When a study is designed by industry and it's not to get FDA approval, that study has been approved by the company with the notion that it's going to increase sales of the drug by moving toward a new indication or making it look like it's a better drug or whatever. As I said earlier, there, it's very important to know how those studies were constructed, how much do they look like the patients I'm treating in my own practice, how much does the method of treatment look like what I do in my practice, how much do the outcomes resemble the outcomes my patients value, Do my patients really want to be 50% less depressed? If they get a, quote, remission, does that mean they still have symptoms, but they're just not as bad, or do they want to be well? And even if they have no symptoms, how do they want to be feeling? How do they want to be functioning, which is usually not an outcome 
in uh, most industry-sponsored studies. Well, these are the studies on which a lot of the consensus guidelines are based. Also, look at who does the consensus guidelines. In general, they're the national experts. And these are the people, by and large, who know the most about current research, but because they're spending a lot of time in whatever research endeavor they're involved in, and because they're working on guidelines and other things, many, but not all, of the experts don't spend an enormous amount of time in actual clinical practice. We also have to bear in mind that there is a political process in any kind of consensus anywhere. People compromise. They will give up a certain point in order to please somebody who's important to them or that they look up to or is going to invite them back to the next consensus conference or whatever. So you have data based on studies that may not reflect our actual patients, and uh, we have to look at who the experts are, what's their stake in promoting a particular treatment approach, what experience have they had with it, and what kind of outcomes are they talking about. And it's important to us to assess all of this just as it is to assess a research study so that we can know how this applies uh, to our patients. We don't say this doesn't apply, so I'm not paying attention to it, but we say, well, these guidelines have this impact on my decision-making, and I also have to consider a number of other things as well. And then, Steve, aren't most of these experts also beholden to industry themselves? The vast majority of experts on consensus panels have uh, drug company ties, and as I said earlier, that's because they tend to be the most successful, the smartest, the most influential people in the field, and the drug companies want to use their services, and they also want those people to stand for the company. Even if they don't mean to be a spokesperson for the company, the fact that they're associated with it brings the company a certain amount of prestige as well. So it'll be rare to see consensus guidelines that don't involve people with industry ties. That doesn't mean that their opinion isn't worthwhile or that it's completely influenced by their relationship with the drug company, but like everything else, we have to factor that in. If we have somebody with a lot of ties to Lilly, for example, and they really like Zyprexa as a better uh, antipsychotic drug than anything else, then we really have to be uh, cautious about the guidelines. If you're new to our channel, you're listening to ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I am Dr. Leslie Lunch, your host, and with me today is Professor and Chair of the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Buffalo, Dr. Stephen Dubofsky. We are discussing how to manage all of the parties that would like to influence the way we practice medicine. Now, Steve, what happens when, when groups like insurance companies use the information in these consensus guidelines to try to deny treatment? This is really a perversion of the practice guidelines because to interpret these guidelines appropriately, you have to ask the questions I was just describing and a number of other questions as well. What insurance companies like to do is limit your choices, especially to less expensive treatments. But on top of that, a lot of the reviewers believe that, well, if it's in print, just like most of us do, it must be true. And therefore, we're only going to follow that, and it is the only truth. So you have a patient, and this has happened to me, for example, I'll have a patient taking, in this particular case, the patient was taking 450 milligrams a day of Effexor and was 
doing quite well. It was combined with two other medicines. And this patient, who was a physician, had a very profound depression that hadn't responded to anything else, and it responded well to this. Well, the insurance company said, we're not paying for that because you're prescribing more than the approved amount of the drug, and this particular combination isn't in the practice guidelines. I said, yeah, but it's in the practice guidelines for this patient because it's working and nothing else did. And the guy is well with no side effects. Nope, we're not approving it unless you can send us articles showing that this is an effective treatment. And, of course, what they were ignorant of was that all of these drugs are metabolized in different ways. We have uh, this patient was a fast metabolizer of venlafaxine. On top of that, there are patients who vary in their ability to transport these drugs in and out of the brain, and that accounts for why some people do better with one combination than another or higher doses than usual. All the insurance company wanted to know was, if it doesn't follow the practice guidelines, we're not paying for it. And uh, what you do there is you argue with them, you appeal, and especially get the patient to appeal. Patients are much more powerful than they think they are. And when they interact with a drug company, go through the right appeals process and get a decision changed, it gives them a sense of, of competence and mastery and can be very useful therapeutically. They can complain to the National Committee on Quality Assurance, the NCQA, which reviews especially managed care companies to determine the levels of patient complaints. When you get a lot of patient complaints, you get a bad rating by the NCQA. It's harder to sell your product to businesses. So the more you complain and fight back, uh, the more likely you are to succeed. After multiple discussions with the drug company, and I sent them some articles. Finally, they said, okay, we'll pay for it, but only if you certify that it's the only thing that will work and mm-hmm. you have to talk to our reviewer. Anything to make it harder for you to do your job. Now, what about advocacy groups? Aren't they often just another way that the pharmaceutical industry tries to influence us? Well, the advocacy groups, you know, have made a tremendous impact on the mental health field, and they've really created a partnership that didn't necessarily exist previously between practitioners and patients. And seeing this and seeing the power of the advocacy groups in the field, industry has now developed partnerships with these groups. Uh, one of the local NAMI groups, I believe, had a some sort of picnic or something that was on Mental Health Day, and it was sponsored by one of the drug companies. And what does that do? It creates a feeling of goodwill. company then says, we're a partner with this group, and it puts them in a position where we respect them, we look up to them, and then the advocacy group says, well, you know, why wouldn't you use their product? And by and large, that level of consumer is a little more naive than the expert is, just like if I see an auto ad or I have a good interaction with an auto salesman, I'm going to be more naive than someone who's a mechanic. Now, in in the last minute or so that we have, in in your book, you discuss ways that practitioners can remain vigilant, not only to new information, but also these potential uh, influence peddlers. What advice do you have for us there? Well, first of all, it's important to be skeptical, but not cynical about the uh, new data that get presented to us. It's very important to keep up with new research because the patients are keeping up with it, usually on the Internet, and we want to be able to answer the questions that they ask us. I'll often hear about a study from a patient before I see it in print. 
because they heard something about it on the news or on the Internet. If you don't have time to keep up with the major journals, it's not a bad idea to subscribe to one of the newsletters that reviews recent research. But in subscribing to one of these, what you want to look at is, number one, do they discuss the research pros and cons and what the implications are, or do they just present a study? The ones that simply say, here's what the study found, uh, are probably not doing a critical review of it. I'd like to thank our guest today, Dr. Stephen Dubofsky. We have been discussing how to navigate through all of the influence peddlers that want to change our practice of medicine. I'm Dr. Leslie Lent. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, please send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.